You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When Ben Johnson set a world record at the 1988 Seoul Olympics doing the 100 meter in only 9.79 seconds, he said that this world record will last for 50 years, maybe 100. It only lasted for a couple of days, until it was discovered he had been doping. But he had a lot of company. Of the eight finalists in the 100 meter race, six of them tested positive for drugs. That's just one of many races where things got a little weird. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Le Mans, Grand Prix, Bathurst, the Indy 500. Car races are big business around the world, but there was a time when people believed these new horseless carriages were a novelty item for the rich, too flimsy for robust activity. In 1908, a race was organized to prove otherwise, in which six teams of drivers tried to be the first to get from New York to Paris. Considering the state of automobile technology and the lack of road infrastructure at the time, that was no mean feat. Only three of the six competitors would even complete the course. The race was a 169-day ordeal, still the longest motorsport event ever held. The starting line was in Times Square on a gray February morning. The six driving teams competed under four flags, Germany, France, Italy, and the United States, with three of the teams being French. The event brought almost a quarter million people to the streets of New York City to witness the start of the race, considerably larger than the crowd for the very first New Year's Eve ball drop earlier that year. The starter's gun fired at 11.15 a.m., 15 minutes late. Mayor George McClellan was supposed to fire the pistol, but he wasn't there on time, and apparently an impatient bystander did the job, and the racers took off. This was the first of many unexpected challenges. The planned route would take the racers across the United States, north into Canada, to Alaska, over the frozen Bering Strait to Siberia, across Russia to Europe, and finally to Paris. The decision to have the race rolling in the midst of winter added to the challenges, Drivers needed to stop often to repair their cars. They even used locomotive lines when it was impossible to find a road. Not the rails, though. The American car straddled the rails, bumping along on the ties for hundreds of miles. The Italian team complained that that was cheating. The car that would win had a four-cylinder, 60-horsepower engine and a top speed of 60 miles per hour. Cars of the day offered little in the way of rider comfort or amenities, like a roof or a windshield. They drove around the world, 15 hours a day, in winter, in open-topped cars, 
without windshields. Antifreeze hadn't even been invented yet, so the radiators had to be drained each night to prevent them from freezing. While most teams were made of a driver and a mechanic, some teams included journalists and even a poet instead. The first car, a French César Nodine, dropped out after only 96 miles with a broken differential they couldn't repair. Another French team lost a man after the two became stuck in the snow and began to fight. They were about to duel with pistols when the driver fired his assistant, an Arctic travel expert he would need later on. Not even to Iowa yet, the Italian car had mechanical troubles, and the driver tried to cheat by loading the car onto a freight train. He abandoned the plan when a photographer caught him in the act. The car's owner sent him a telegram. Quit race. Sell car. Come home. The American team, driving a Thomas Flyer, took the lead across the United States. They managed to arrive in San Francisco in 41 days, 8 hours, and 50 minutes, 9,000 miles ahead of the car in second place. This was actually the very first crossing of the U.S. in an automobile in the winter. The route was then to take the drivers to Valdez, Alaska by ship. The American driver wasted no time investigating the Valdez Fairbanks Trail in a single horse sleigh concluding that the only way to cross Alaska in a car would be to dismantle it and ship the parts by dog sled. The race committee, headquartered in Paris, abandoned the idea of Alaska and the Bering Strait and ordered the Americans to return to Seattle. The new plan was for the cars to sail to Vladivostok and drive to Paris from there. While the Americans were still sailing back to Seattle, their competitors arrived there and set sail for Russia. Then the Americans lost more time getting their Russian visas. The flyer had been the first to arrive on the Pacific coast, but now was the last to leave, a week behind the competitors. The race committee decided the American team was to be given an allowance of 15 days, meaning the remaining teams could beat them to Paris by two weeks and still lose. And they penalized the team that had tried to send their car by train. The driving resumed from Vladivostok, but by that point there were only three competitors left. The drivers agreed to start again evenly matched. They had extreme trouble finding petrol in Siberia, leading the French driver to try to bribe the other teams to let him ride on one of their cars so he could at least be on a winning car. This prompted his sponsor to pull him from the race. The two teams faced another set of challenges trying to traverse the tundra of Siberia and Manchuria. The spring thaw turned the Asian plains into seemingly endless swamp. Progress was measured in feet per hour, not miles. Drivers had to push their cars as much as drive them, and even resorted to hitching them up to teams of rented horses. And they got lost. A lot. The racers couldn't ask locals for directions, as none of them spoke Russian, and a wrong turn could cost you 15 hours or more. Once they neared Europe, roads improved and the race sped up. The Germans arrived in Paris on July 26, while the Americans were still in Berlin. But the 15-day allowance for the Americans, and the 15-day penalty for the Germans, meant that the flyer had a month to drive to the neighboring country. The American team arrived in Paris four days later to win the race, having covered approximately 16,700 miles. 
Even though the victor had been declared, the Italians drove on and made it to Paris in September. The victory meant huge recognition for the American driver, who in 2010 was also inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame. If you're ever in Reno, Nevada, you can see the Thomas Flyer in the National Automobile Museum. America's first Olympics, held in 1904 in St. Louis as part of that year's World's Fair, stand unchallenged for the title of Most Bizarre. The Olympics' signal event, the Marathon, was conceived to honor the classical heritage of Greece and underscore the connection between the ancient and the modern. The outcome was so scandalous that the event was nearly abolished for good. A few of the runners were recognized marathoners. The rest could be described as assorted. There was a man who did all of his training at night because of his day job as a bricklayer. There were ten Greeks who had never run a marathon. Two men from the Suwana tribe of South Africa, who were in St. Louis as part of the South African World's Fair exhibit, who arrived at the starting line barefoot. And a Cuban mailman named Felix Carbajal, dressed in a white long sleeve shirt, long dark pants, a beret, and a pair of street shoes who raised money to come to the States by demonstrating his running prowess, traversing the length of the island. Upon his arrival in New Orleans, he lost all his money in a dice game and had to walk and hitchhike to St. Louis. The race was run on August 30th, starting at 3.03 p.m. If you know anything about daytime temperatures, that's what we call hot time. Heat and humidity soared into the 90s. The 24.85-mile course involved roads inches deep with dust. Seven hills, varying from 100 to 300 feet high, some with brutally long ascents. There was cracked stone strewn across the roadway, a roadway that was still open to traffic, trains, trolley cars, and people walking their dogs. There were only two places where athletes could get fresh water a water tower at 6 miles, and a roadside well at 12 miles. Cars carrying coaches and physicians drove right alongside the runners, kicking up dust and launching them into coughing spells. William Garcia of California nearly became a fatality of the Olympic marathon when he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging. The dust had coated his esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. Len Tao, one of the South African participants, was chased a mile off course by stray dogs. Felix Carbajal trotted along in his cumbersome shoes and billowing shirt, making good time even though he paused to chat with spectators in his broken English. A bit further along the course, he stopped in an orchard and snacked on some apples, which turned out to be a little rotten. Suffering from stomach cramps, he laid down and took a nap. At the nine-mile mark, cramps plagued Fred Lors, who decided to hitch a ride in one of the accompanying vehicles, waving at spectators and fellow runners as he did. Thomas Hicks, the bricklayer, one of the early American favorites, begged his two-man support crew for a drink at the ten-mile mark. They refused, instead sponging out his mouth with warm distilled water. Purposeful dehydration was considered a positive thing 115 years ago. Seven miles from the finish, his handlers fed him a concoction of egg whites and strychnine, the first recorded instance of drug use in the modern Olympics. Strychnine, in small doses, was commonly used as a stimulant. Hicks's team also carried a flask of French brandy, 
but decided to withhold it from him a little bit longer. Meanwhile, Lors, recovered from his cramps, emerged from his 11-mile ride in the automobile. One of Hicks's handlers saw him and ordered him off the course, but Lors kept running and finished with a time just under three hours. The crowd roared and began chanting, an American won! Alice Roosevelt, the 20-year-old daughter of President Theodore Roosevelt, placed a wreath upon Lors' head and was just about to lower the gold medal around his neck. When, one witness reported, Someone called an indignant halt to the proceeding with the charge that Lors was an impostor. The cheers turned to boos. Lors smiled and claimed he never intended to accept the honor. He finished only for the sake of a joke. You know, it was just a prank, bro. Meanwhile, Hicks, pumping with strychnine, had gone ashen and limp. When he heard that Lors had been disqualified, he perked up and forced his legs to keep going. His trainers gave him another dose of strychnine and egg whites, this time with some brandy to wash it down. They fetched warm water and soaked his body from head to toe. He began hallucinating, believing the finish line was still 20 miles away. In the last mile, he begged for something to eat, then begged to lie down. He was given more brandy and two more egg whites. As he reached the stadium, he tried to run, but was reduced to a graceless shuffle. His trainers carried him over the line, holding him aloft while he moved his feet back and forth, and was declared the winner. It took an hour and four doctors for Hicks to feel well enough just to leave the stadium. He lost eight pounds during the course of the race, and declared, Never in my life have I run such a tough course. The terrific hills simply tear a man to pieces. Hicks and Lors would meet again at the Boston Marathon the following year, which Lors won fair and square. Bonus fact, the 1904 Olympics also saw gymnast George Iser win six medals, including three gold, despite his wooden leg. Speaking of marathons, we're halfway through our Patreon relaunch with limited time special offer. And I'd like to welcome our two new patrons, Dan and Sean. What does it mean to have a Patreon special offer? It means that people who become members of patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts before our one-year anniversary on February 12th get benefits unavailable after that date. For starters, you will get two bonus mini-episodes every month, regardless of which tier you select. One of the recent episodes was Interesting Things About The Rock, not Dwayne Johnson, but Alcatraz, such as inmates being fed the best food of any prison in the country because the warden believed that it would reduce insurrection, and how the temperature in the showers was controlled at a certain warmth so that inmates could not acclimate themselves to the frigid water of the bay for an escape attempt. All new members, and yes, of course, our existing members, will receive a custom Your Brain on Facts acrylic keychain. You can see clips of the laser cutter at work on Facebook or Instagram.com slash Your Brain on Facts or Twitter.com slash Brain on Facts pod. We will only be making the exact number of these we need for the campaign, so once they're gone, they're gone. And the third unique aspect, I only need $50 to cover my expenses, so if membership goes above $75, half of that amount will go to artists who create the resources that podcasters and other creatives use, such as free music. 
If membership goes above $100, all of that money will go to a charity suggested by our patrons. The donation redistribution will be in effect in perpetuity, but to get the keychain and the bonus episodes, you have to sign up at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts before midnight at the end of February 12th. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. While it's usually easy for humans on a race course to navigate, how do homing pigeons figure out where they are? A researcher at the U.S. Geological Survey has come up with a novel suggestion arising from, of all things, a pigeon race. In Europe, and to a lesser extent the U.S., pigeon racing is a passionately followed sport for which birds are carefully bred and trained. Birds from many lofts are taken to a common distant location, released together, and their return speeds are timed. 90% of the birds usually return within a few days, and eventually almost all do. Usually. On Sunday, June 29, 1997, a great race was held to celebrate the centenary of the Royal Pigeon Racing Association. More than 60,000 homing pigeons were released at 6.30 a.m. from a field in Nantes in southern France, flying to lofts all over southern England, about 500 miles or 800 kilometers away. By 11 a.m., the majority of the birds had made their way out of France and were over the English Channel. The fastest birds should have arrived back at their lofts by early afternoon. But they didn't. A few thousand birds straggled in over the next few days. Most of the 60,000 were never seen again. The loss of so many birds was a disaster of previously unimagined proportions in the pigeon racing world. One bird could get lost, maybe a hundred, but tens of thousands? A theory would later emerge. At the very same time that the racing pigeons were crossing the English Channel, the Concorde supersonic airliner was flying along the Channel on its morning flight from Paris to New York. In flight, the Concorde generated a shockwave that pounded down toward the Earth, a carpet of sound almost a hundred miles wide. The racing pigeons flying below the Concorde could not have escaped this intense wave of sound. 
The birds that did eventually arrive back at their lofts were lucky to be more tortoise than hare. They were still south of the channel when the Concorde passed over ahead of them. It's believed that racing pigeons use low-frequency sound to determine their location. A low-frequency sound can travel for thousands of miles. That's how you're able to hear distant thunder. What sort of infrasounds do pigeons use for guidance? All over the world, there is one infrasound, the very low-frequency acoustic shock waves generated by ocean waves banging against one another. Like an acoustic beacon, the constant stream of tiny seismic waves would always tell you where the ocean is. This same infrasound mapping may play an important part in the long-distance navigation of other creatures. It could explain how monarch butterflies in the U.S. are able to find one small locality in Mexico, or how Brazilian sea turtles are able to find their way to their home on tiny Ascension Island a thousand miles out in the Atlantic. Even more valuable to a racing pigeon looking for home, infrasound will reflect off of mountains, cliffs, and other steep-sided features of the Earth's surface. Ocean wave infrasound reflecting off the local terrain can provide a pigeon with a detailed picture of its surroundings, near and far. The enormous wave of infrasound generated by the Concorde's sonic boom would have blotted out all of the normal oceanic reference. Any bird flying in its path would have completely lost its orientation. The incident is referred to as the Great Pigeon Race Disaster. The Concorde stopped flying six years later for reasons unrelated to pigeons. Not every race goes to the swiftest. One was meant to go to the friskiest. Charles Vance Miller practiced law in Ontario for 45 years until his death in 1926. He was also a shrewd investor, which meant that he had amassed a nice fat bank account before his fatal heart attack. A lifelong bachelor with no close relatives, Miller wrote up a will that was as mischievous as he had been. Miller, for example, would amuse himself by dropping dollar bills on the sidewalk and watching the expressions of people who bent to furtively pocket the cash. In death, Miller outdid himself in roguishness. He wrote, this will is necessarily uncommon and capricious, because I have no dependents or near relations, and no duty rests upon me to leave any property at my death, and what I do leave is proof of my folly in gathering and retaining more than I required in my lifetime. Some provisions include leaving a share of tenancy of a Jamaican vacation spot to three men who couldn't stand the sight of each other. He tested the resolve of teetotalers by leaving them shares in companies involved in the alcohol business. The Ontario Jockey Club is an august body whose members are drawn from society's upper crust, so Miller left shares in the club to an unsavory character who existing members found repellent, and to two opponents of racetrack gambling. He parceled out much of his estate to test the theory that every person has a price, the only mystery being at what level would greed triumph over principle. But it was clause number nine of the will that caused the most fuss. It was the legacy that triggered a race to conceive. Simply put, he directed the remainder of his estate be given to the Toronto mother who gave birth to the most children in the ten years immediately following his death. The money wasn't chump change either. By the time the race came to an end, 
the total prize was worth $750,000, more than $12 million today. What came to be called the Great Stork Derby was on, especially at the three-year mark when the stock market crash of 1929 ushered in the Great Depression. You might have heard of it. With so many people experiencing unemployment and poverty, the pot of gold at the end of Miller's will was enticing, even if attempting it meant creating a lot more mouths to feed. Newspapers followed the fecundity of the contestants closely. It was a welcome distraction from the grim reality of the day. Five women leading the pack, mostly low-income and already with a slew of children, became household names. Those five of most fruitful loins had delivered 56 children between them, 32 of which had been born by 1933. From Time magazine on Christmas Eve 1934, last week in Toronto, each of the two leading contenders for the prize money bore a child. Mrs. Frances Kenny, 31, gave birth to a girl, her 11th since the race began. Mrs. Grace Bagnato, 41, gave birth to a boy, her 9th. While citizens followed the race keenly, the Ontario Provisional Government was not as entertained. It called the Maternal Marathon the most revolting and disgusting exhibition ever put on in a civilized country. Midnight on Halloween 1936 was the deadline for the baby birthing. On October 19th, the Daily Journal World of Lawrence, Kansas, a hesitant stork circles uncertainly today over 1097 West Dundas Street with what looked like a $750,000 baby in his well-worn bill. However, the productive resident of that address, Grace Bagnato, was soon disqualified from the derby because her husband was an illegal immigrant, and that didn't sit well with the authorities. An illegal Italian immigrant. Everything old is new again, I guess. Lillian Kenny, who had ten births to her credit, was also tossed out because she had the misfortune to deliver two stillbirths, and that was declared not to count. Pauline Clark also gave birth ten times during the competition, but several of the babies had been conceived out of wedlock, an activity deeply frowned upon at the time, so they were out. As the final whistle blew, four women were tied at nine babies each. Annie Smith, Alice Timlek, Kathleen Nagel, and Isabel McLean each received $125,000, or about $2 million in today's money. Lillian Kenny and Pauline Clark were given consolation prizes of $12,500, or $20,000 today. Mrs. Bagnato, whose husband was in the country illegally, got nothing. When Miller's law partner found the will, he thought it was a joke rather than a legal document. Others thought the purpose was to tie the legal system up in knots. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the question of whether Miller intended his will to take effect or merely to amuse his lawyer friends remains in doubt. The Ontario government, which had earlier huffed and puffed about the unseemly nature of the Stork Derby, tried several times to have Miller's will declared null and void. The Premier, Mitchell Hepburn, said it was the duty of the government to stop this fiasco. A few of Miller's distant relatives popped up to challenge the will, hoping to secure some of the jackpot. But the will, complete with Clause Number 9, held up, and eventually the Supreme Court of Canada said that it was valid. It's pleasing to report that the winners handled their legacy sensibly and were able to buy homes and provide education for their children.
the winners, that is. Nobody knows how many women started the Stork Derby and then dropped out. However, by the end, at least two dozen mothers produced eight or more babies. This placed an enormous burden on the families who were suffering through the Great Depression, when 25% of Toronto's families were receiving government support. The prize money was a direct result of Miller's capricious nature. He once missed the ferry between Windsor, Canada and Detroit, Michigan. This angered him so much that he bought the property that would eventually be used to construct the Detroit-Windsor Tunnel, which put the ferries out of business. It was money from this investment that largely funded the Stork Derby. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Some races go off the rails, but there are plenty that were made to be weird. Every year, young women line the streets of Moscow to run for a cause near and dear to their hearts. Shopping. Glamour magazine hosts an annual stiletto race. Young women strap on their tallest heels, three and a half inches or nine centimeters minimum, and run a 160-foot or 50-meter course in hopes of winning a $3,000 gift card. Most of the women tape the shoes to their feet, but that doesn't stop all the trips, slips, and falls. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And thanks again, Dan and Sean, our latest Patreon patrons. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.